As I record this, we can't be sure how Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine will play out. Will it successfully step up its campaign? Will Vladimir Putin have to accept the consequences of a humiliating defeat? Or, in the name of peace, will Russia be allowed some symbolic face-saving concession? Whatever happens, the consequences of this conflict are rippling across the world. Immediate effects include economic shocks, global food shortages. Beyond that, as India suffers its worst modern heat waves and large parts of Australia become uninsurable due to floods and fires, world leaders seem to have lost focus on the biggest threat our species has ever faced, climate change. Will our children and grandchildren look back on today as the time we catastrophically abandoned even the pretense of internationalism? Or will the events in Ukraine mark a more auspicious turning point, the beginning of the end of the era of the strongman? There can be no more important question. And today on Bridges, I'll be speaking to someone whose latest book can help us try to work out and maybe even influence the answer. This is Bridges to the Future, the big ideas podcast brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to be joined by Financial Times journalist, author Gideon Rackman, the author of an important book, The Age of the Strongman, How the Cult of the Leader Threatens Democracy Around the World. Welcome, Gideon. Thank you very much. Gideon, the book is incredibly interesting, wide-ranging, powerful, alarming. In this interview, I want, if it's okay, to spend some time discussing what would no doubt have been the final chapter had you finished the book six months later, the chapter on Russia's invasion and the fallout from it. But but before we get into that, I want to share with our listeners the core thesis of the book. So let's let's start with that. What do you mean by the age of the strong man? Well, what I'm arguing essentially is that uh, round about the beginning of the new century, in fact, almost too symbolically, Vladimir Putin comes to power on the 31st of December 1999, that global politics takes a turn and that the relatively brief period where it seemed like liberal democracy was in the ascendancy, at least in the major powers, comes to a close. And that over the last 20 years, you've had instead building what I call the age of the strongman, which is the rise of a very personalized, usually authoritarian form of leadership in actually most of the world's most important countries, so that you have Putin, as I say, in in Russia, but then in 2003, you have Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, who actually, similarly to Putin, is initially hailed as a kind of liberal reformer in the West. We tend to misread a lot of these leaders. Then in 2012, perhaps most important of all, because of the importance of a rising China, Xi Jinping becomes general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, He too is actually hailed initially as a reformer in the West, but also starts moving his country towards a much more personalized and even more authoritarian model. He incorporates his own thought into the Chinese constitution, abolishes term limits on the presidency, creates a personality cult, and so on. 2014, Narendra Modi in India. 2015 is the year I associate with Viktor Orban in Hungary. He'd been in power a while, but that's the year that he becomes a kind of global figure because of the refugee crisis when he literally builds a wall to to keep refugees from flowing into Europe. 2016 is probably, you know, almost the most shocking year because that's the year that Donald Trump is elected in the United States. 
And I think we'd thought that this style of authoritarian strongman leadership was kind of alien to the West, but proves it isn't. And then in 2018, you get Bolsonaro in Brazil, and the year later, AMLO in Mexico, Abiy Ahmed in Ethiopia, so that by the end of 20 years, you can really see that this is not just a global trend, but I would argue kind of the dominant global political trend, because you have the two most populous countries in the world, India and China. You have three of the five members of the UN Security Council, Russia, China, the United States. I think Britain actually is also part of this story. I think Boris Johnson has elements of the strongman style. And you also have the two most populous countries in Latin America, Mexico and Brazil. So it really is a powerful and slightly disturbing global story. So one of the arguments in history over a long time has been between a kind of deterministic way of understanding history to do with structures and systems, Marxism being perhaps the most well-known example, and the kind of great man view of history, which sees history as more contingent and more about individuals. When you have a book called The Age of the Strongman, it might implicitly suggest that you're siding with a view that says that we should understand the importance of individuals in history. But for you, it's not just about the, you, you can't understand these men without understanding the context in which they arise. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's an interesting point you make. I mean, that, you know, I'm, I'm always struck now, I'm mixed with political scientists, have kids who are studying political science, that Political science, as opposed to history, which is what I study, doesn't really have much room for the individual. It's it's very interested in structures. I think, you know, very traditional history, as you say, was preoccupied often by the role of the great man, you know, the Napoleon who changes the world. I would say that where I've landed is somewhere in between. I mean, I think it's hard to study the these particular individuals that I write about without thinking that personalities matter and that an individual can take a country in a new direction. And, you know, often by accident, I think that by accident, I mean that things could have turned out differently. You know, if Hillary Clinton had beaten Donald Trump, you know, I think the modern history of not just the United States, but of the world would have been different. And that, as we know, came down to a very few votes. But that said, Obviously, the argument of the book and what I'm trying to present is that there's a global pattern. So you can't say, well, you know, Erdogan did this to Turkey or Orban did this to the European Union without asking, well, why are we getting so many of these people at the same time? So I think it's a mixture of structures and individuals. Yeah, so that was something I wrestled with as I read through the book is how we should understand this phenomena. There were times at which I just thought, well, this is a kind of post-ideological fascism. And there were other times when I thought, well, no, this is a fundamentally around the kind of accretion of power and wealth. Basically, it's around a kind of corruption of politics. You talk at the end of the book about the influence of Carl Schmitt and a set of ideas that lay behind national socialism. To what extent is it, should we understand this as, as ideological? I think it's, you know, again, it's a mix that, you know, in a way, Putin epitomizes that mixture. So that I think that there's no doubt that for a lot of the people around him, and if the rumours about his personal wealth are true for for him himself, there's just a simple cynical motive of enriching themselves and becoming very wealthy. And then once you start doing that through illegal means, or means that might be deemed illegal in another regime, it's very hard for you to step down from power because the alternative might be prison. So 
there's that. But I think that actually Putin also is ideological at the same time. I mean, when he writes a long essay about how Ukrainians and Russians are one people, when he rails against Western liberalism, I don't think this is pure sort of blarney that he's throwing out or chap that he's throwing out to disguise his real intent, which is just to steal money. I think both things can be true at the same time. And I think that's a pattern that you see to varying degrees. I mean, obviously, all these people are different. You know, maybe Trump is more instinctual, less ideological, and I think very much motivated by ego and by power and money. But the people around him, people like Steve Bannon and Miller, Stephen Miller, are ideologues. So they will use the Trump movement to fill up the president with ideas that are deeply held by them. And I think in some cases, yeah, quite close to fascism. And I think you see that mix right across. And Erdogan is another example. You know, his family become very rich, but he's also a very ideological person, you know, who believes deeply in the re-Islamization of, of Turkey, the reassertion of Turkish greatness. So I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. So again, it's churlish of me to to say of, of such a great book, which I enjoyed so much, to talk about something that isn't in it. But I I was a bit surprised by the end that you you didn't say anything about the fact that these people are all men. And the point I'm making there is not simply that, you know, the kind of characteristics of these people, the kind of masculine characteristics, we want to explore that idea, but actually that in some senses, the reaction against modernity, against liberalism, is also a reaction against the powerful forces of modernity, which feminism, the rise of women, is a big part of this. I'm surprised you didn't want to talk about the kind of gendered element of the strongman phenomenon. I think it's in there, actually. I can't, I couldn't point you to the exact pages, but it's true. I don't have a, because I tend to go, you know, each individual and then an introductory chapter and an end chapter. I don't have a specific chapter on gender, but I think I, I do make the point somewhere that it's not a coincidence that they're all men. And it's certainly, I think, correct that, you know, a lot of this is the politics of cultural reaction. Some of the reaction is against immigration or against minorities. And some of it is a reaction against that huge social change that's involved with with the rise of feminism. And so I think, you, again, you can see this as a pretty constant theme for, for all of these leaders that, you know, Trump famously is sort of makes kind of vile comments about, you know, grabbing women by the pussy and so on. And at the time, people perhaps in the sort of mainstream media, as Trump would call them dismissively, thought, oh, well, that's it. You know, you can't talk like that in the modern world. But Trump, I think, instinctively understood that for a lot of people who would vote for him, they might not only not be appalled by that language, but actually be kind of quietly amused and pleased that somebody could still talk like that and get away with it. Because there is a lot of resentment amongst particularly sort of men who feel they've been doing badly in the current society and who feel that, you know, jobs and opportunities that might have been theirs, theirs exclusively in the past, if you were a white guy, there wouldn't have been black people competing for your opportunities or women competing for your opportunities. And now, you know, Trump will tell you, not only are they competing with you, they're unfairly privileged because of, you know, affirmative action or efforts at gender equity in the workplace and so on. So there is a huge pool of resentment out there. And I, I mentioned Trump because, you know, he's an example that we're all very familiar with. But similarly, Erdogan represents very conservative elements in Turkish society. His followers are headscarfed and they're kind of 
against the more secular elites of Istanbul who will look, you know, much like their counterparts in Paris or New York. So there's that. I mean, another example that springs to mind that's in the book, actually, is Salvini in Italy, who's a kind of Italy's would-be strongman and who's close to Putin. He even goes to the length of wearing a Putin T-shirt in Red Square. I was very struck talking to a liberal Italian woman, a woman called Laura Baldrini, who said that to demean her, Salvini had waved around a inflatable sex doll on stage with her name written on it, saying, you know, this is Laura Baldrini. So sure, absolutely. I think the gender backlash is a very important part of this. And the temptation is, I guess, amongst people like me, kind of liberal, semi-intelligentsia, doing quite well, living in central London, to see that this is a kind of movement of those who are beleaguered, left behind, resentful. But you want to say in the book at various points, including at the end and the beginning, that liberalism has to recognise its own role in creating the circumstances. We can't simply understand the rise of the strongman as, as a kind of combination of corrupt, power-hungry individuals and resentful people, neoliberalism or the form of liberalism which existed really until, was dominant until 2008, it was insufficiently concerned, for example, with issues of social solidarity. Yeah, I think so. And in a funny way, I think that's almost the easy part for for neoliberals or liberals to acknowledge that, you know, inequality widened too much, particularly in the West. And I, I say it's the easy part because, you know, very few people will say, yeah, I'm in favour of inequality. Most people will say, well, fine, you know, maybe we did get our policies wrong and maybe we, we were too blithe. And I think we were about, for example, deindustrialization in large parts of the West and what that would do to people's sense of the society they were in and and maybe create the, the kind of susceptibility to a strong man who will come in and say, look, society is broken and you need somebody like me to break through against the liberal elites. Now, recognising the problem and fixing it, obviously, very different things. But when I say it's the easy part, I mean, I think there's another very live example right now in the UK, which is immigration, which I think is, again, a critical part of the appeal of a lot of these leaders. You know, Trump is build the wall, is his slogan in the first campaign, and his almost his first act is try to ban, literally ban all Muslims from entering the country, if you remember the Muslim ban. But it's not unique to him. Orban, as I say, shoots to global prominence, really, because of his effort to stem refugees coming to the EU. In, in the Brexit referendum, take back control is, I think, largely understood as about borders. And right now, you know, if you think about the Rwanda exercise, policy of trying to deport would-be migrants crossing the channel to Rwanda, I think a lot of liberal opinion in the UK is pretty outraged by it. But they haven't really got an answer to the question well, what would you do? What would you do about it? How would you stop it? And most people think it should be stopped if you look at opinion polls. And in fact, the Rwanda policy is popular. I was talking to, uh, you know, a civil servant who's kind of involved in it slightly reluctantly. But he said, if you look at the opinion polls, Pretty Patel's ratings among conservative activists has, have shot up since she announced this policy. And as far as I can see, it, it enjoy, it's not uncontroversial, obviously, but it enjoys quite a lot of support. So liberals have to deal with questions that, that make them feel very uncomfortable. 
Yeah, and this is very much part of the phenomenon, isn't it, getting that the centrists and the left have been quite disorientated, haven't they, by this? It's it's almost kind of reminiscent of a football game where the team that ostensibly has the better players can't really cope with the kind of long ball tactics yeah. of their opposition. They're almost affronted by the way the other team's playing. Exactly. Yeah, they're doing something that you're not meant to do. And so the initial reaction is, well, that's outrageous, that'll finish them off. Or, well, we can't stoop to that level. We're going to keep playing our close passing game, you know, whatever, as they continue to rack up the goals. So, yeah, it's a problem. I mean, you know, that Trump, of course, did try to steal the last election, but but there's no, you, one shouldn't minimize the fact that he also has enormous support and may win the next election actually fairly. I mean, I doubt he'll win a majority of the votes, but that's uh, the American system is that if you're a Republican, you can win with, you know, 47, 48% under the Electoral College. So even that's a considerable number of Americans. Now, one of the themes running through the book is, uh, you know, there were moments when I thought you could kind of put a cork board up and then have pins for each of these people, and then you could connect them in various ways. There is a kind of loose affiliation, sometimes tight, sometimes loose affiliation between these characters, whether they are in Africa or Latin America or Saudi Arabia or Russia or China, whatever. And it's through that lens, I want to open up this question, Gideon, of what your final chapter would have been were you to be finishing the book today. Because in that network, Putin is the kind of uh, strong man, isn't he? He, as, as you said, in, I think at the beginning of this conversation, he's really the person that all the other strong men have tended, perhaps now it's different with Xi Jinping, but tended to defer to as the kind of model. Just before we get into kind of Ukraine, that's right, isn't it? That Putin is the strong man pinup. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that in a way, because partly sometimes people express admiration for Putin precisely because it has a shock value. You know, so when Rodrigo Duterte, the strongman in the Philippines who's just stepped down, although his daughter's become vice president, sort of fusing the Marcos and Duterte clans. But when Duterte says, my hero, my real hero is Putin, it is partly this sort of shock value of the strongman. He kind of giggles after saying it. But then there's a whole bunch of them who, who say similar things. I mean, two days before the invasion of Ukraine, Trump is still giving interviews saying that Putin is a strategic genius you know, in the UK in 2014, Nigel Farage gives an interview where he says that the politician he most admires in the world is Vladimir Putin. And he says, I don't approve of some of what he's doing, but what he did in Syria was, again, he uses the word genius, you know, that this it was so clever. Viktor Orban in Hungary says, you know, that you've got to, whatever you think about Putin, you've got to accept that he's made Russia great again. And I think it's this combination of literal sort of macho imagery, you know, which would kind of liberal types giggle at, you know, when he poses bare-chested with a gun. But actually, you know, it does send a completely different imagery. It is this sort of macho undercurrent of violence leadership that, you know, you're not going to see from an Angela Merkel or whatever. So for the Merkel haters out there, or the Hillary haters, this is a different model of leadership. And it's not just stylistically. He is a strong nationalist. He's prepared to, to wage war, as we've seen. And for initially, he's a efforts are rewarded with success, Chechnya, Georgia, Syria. And also, he deliberately kind of shows some ankle to cultural conservatives in the West by weighing in on debates like gay rights. He's kind of against them. 
on trans rights. This has become a real touchstone issue right across the West, but one in which the strongmen kind of outside the West weigh in. So bizarrely, during the Ukraine war, even as it's going on, Putin starts commenting about J.K. Rowling and saying, you know, what a great person she is. Now, Rowling obviously could do without that compliment and repudiates it. But nonetheless, he is following our cultural debates and appealing to the kind of cultural conservatives who are attracted to strongman figures. And the attraction is mutual so that Tucker Carlson, who's probably the most important Fox News host and is, uh, you know, one who's constantly hitting on themes like trans rights, anti-affirmative action, anti-feminist, and is close to Trump, is still saying that, you know, it's crazy to be supporting Ukraine and, you know, why should we hate Vladimir Putin? So, yeah, Putin is, is, is a key figure in all of this. And actually, even Xi Jinping, Although in power terms, obviously, Russia is now the junior partner. When she comes in in 2012-13, one of the first things he does is say to his followers in the Communist Party that we must learn from the collapse of the Soviet Union because that's not going to be allowed to happen here. The dissolution of the Communist Party or the weakness of the Communist Party was a disaster. And he sort of circulates a film about the collapse of the, the Soviet Union and says... At the time, nobody was man enough to stand up to it. And I think he sees Putin as somebody who is trying correctly to reconstruct some of the greatness of the old Soviet Union. Which takes us neatly to the last chapter of the book in which you suggest a kind of periodization of history in kind of long waves. And there's the long social democratic or social market wave after the Second World War, followed by the kind of long hyper-liberal, neoliberal wave. And now we are in the era of the strongman. And and you suggest that we're we're kind of around halfway through this, but you don't want to. You're not a determinist, and you don't want us to be complacent and think, "Oh, well, we can just sit back and wait for this moment to pass." You know, you want to recognise that this is a very volatile and difficult situation. That it won't necessarily be that the age of the strong man naturally declines in any way. As I said at the beginning, we don't have time with climate change, in particular, in mind to kind of sit back and wait for progress to to reassert itself so at this moment that's your kind of thesis of a of a world at this juncture where different things could happen in terms of this whether how long this era lasts and how it how it declines and then into this moment comes russia's invasion of ukraine and then several of the themes of your book then stand out so first of all it looks as though putin is not going to win this war He's certainly not going to win it in the way which goes with the kind of strong man image. And even however much propaganda he generates, I don't think the rest of the world is going to believe that he's won it. So that that's something because, you know, in a strong man world, nothing succeeds like success and nothing fails like failure. And then you talked about Orban and, you know, you, you talk about Poland in the book as an example of a kind of or a quasi kind of strong man. Of course, the, the Polish leader is in personal style very different. Now these alliances have been have been thrown up in the air now. I just you know, in the last couple of days you read that Hungarian oil companies are saying that we have to have a plan to get rid of Russian oil, whatever, despite Orban's vacillation. So I've said this a few times, but what would you be writing now were you to be writing a new last chapter of your book? Well, you know, the, the thing about these these books is that there's never a good time to stop. So even now would not be a good time to stop because we don't quite know the fallout of all of this. And there's still probably a few twists and turns. But I think what we can already say is that 
Well, a couple of things. Firstly, that the invasion of Ukraine shows the the flaws in the strongman model. And, you know, I was looking back after the, the invasion to see, God, you know, how did I finish the book? How good or bad does it seem? And I, in fact, the last words of the book are something like that strongman rules an inherently flawed and unstable government, form of government, it will ultimately collapse. But there may be a lot of turmoil and suffering before the age of the strongman is finally consigned to history. And I, I think, you know, that's, it's not too bad in the in the context of what happened because I think that strongman rule is flawed because of its overconcentration of power in an individual, and the longer the individual is in power, the more likely they are to become sort of megalomaniacal, cut off from reality, paranoid, just get old and lose their touch. So that I think that those who were surprised by Putin's invasion and said were saying, "Well, we know this guy; he's a known quantity." He's, you know, he's ruthless, but he's not crazy. That was a line you heard from people who very much doubted he would go for it. I think ignore the way in which actually a lot of these leaders become more and more kind of erratic the longer they're in power. And I think we've seen that. And I think that also, you know, the fact that unlike in a democratic system, there aren't advisors really who have the independent standing to to stop something like this, even if they suspect it's going to go badly wrong, as it did. But then if you look at the sort of global consequences of it going wrong, and I think we can say that obviously the initial plan failed, that I think he thought he'd win in three days, you know, a week, that it would be like the occupation of Crimea in 2014, where they didn't really fire a shot. They just took the place over. I think he thought Ukraine would collapse like a house of cards. Now, obviously, that hasn't happened. I think if he'd won in those three days, then I think that the prestige of the strongman model around the world would have grown even more it would have been an absolute disaster for the Western liberalism because it would have been, you know, six months after the collapse of Afghanistan and the 20-year American war in Afghanistan had ended in failure. And that was itself six months after the attempted storming of the capital by Trump's followers. It would have looked like, you know, the West was all washed up. And now the United States had essentially lost its monopoly on invading people and that it was going to be free range, that China might be able to to take on Taiwan, you know, who knows what India would plan to do in Kashmir or next time they clash with Pakistan, that that sort of strongman style would have been vindicated and that its logical conclusion actually was warfare as in the 1930s. The fact that Putin has miscalculated and actually that the West has been much more resilient and much more able to get its act together and push back, I think offers a chance to to start turning this trend around. The uh, CIA director, William Burns, who uh, gave a public interview to the FT not so long ago, said that he believed that China is very disturbed by this turn of events. And, you know, just looking at it from first principles, you can see why they would be. Because just three weeks before the invasion, she and Putin meet in Beijing they sign a joint statement, which is not just like a statement of things our countries are going to do together. It's very ideological. It, it, it attacks the United States' vision of the world. It accuses the West of sponsoring color revolutions around the world. It, it, and it declares a partnership without limits between Russia and China. And yet, you know, the Russian end of it then goes quickly wrong. So China sees its major partner, floundering, and also sees the Western allies getting their act together in a way that they hadn't really anticipated. So this is a, a moment where 
you know, it's possible that the tide will turn against strongman leadership, but it's only possible because unexpected things could yet happen in this war. And I think, you know, we're already, or I'm already concerned about, well, you know, what happens in the next US presidential election? I think the Democrats are going to get hammered in the midterms. And it's quite likely, I think, probable that Trump will run again. And if he runs again in an era of high inflation against an 82-year-old Joe Biden, he's got a very good chance of winning. So it's premature to say, well, this strongman era is all, all washed up. And then, as I said at the beginning, Gideon, perhaps in some ways almost the most depressing part of this is that all of this is distracting our attention from what is happening in the environment. And I mean, I'm not saying that to sound pious. It's just that by coincidence, while all these other things have been happening, the news on the environment has been appallingly grim. As I said, whether it's Indian heat waves, I was just reading the other day, the highest temperatures ever predicted in Spain just down the road from us. So, uh, you know, even if we are emerging, even if we were lucky and we were emerging for the age of the strum, and even if Trump or Trump 2.0 was not to win in two years' time, we're still using up incredibly valuable energy, not addressing the existential threat rates in the human race. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the, one of the many depressing aspects of this whole phenomenon is how atavistic and backward looking it is. These are leaders who who very much are not forward looking they're what i call nostalgic nationalists so trump has his make america great again which harks back to the 1950s she talks about the great rejuvenation of the chinese people you know before the century of humiliation which the chinese date to the 1830s and 40s putin looks back to the glories of the soviet union Modi looks back to the glories of india before even the mogul empires there there are people who say let's go back to the past and and actually, they very often are climate change skeptics because I think because their pitch is nationalist, they can't really deal with a global problem that requires global cooperation. And so they are very emotionally inclined to say, well, it's not real. Or, you know, it's part of this plot by globalists, George Soros or, or whoever, to hoodwink the masses and to reduce their standards of living or to, to make our nation pay the price for this while others, you know, get away with it. So, yeah, these are exactly the wrong set of leaders to deal with this existential crisis of climate change. Well, Gideon, thank you so much for spending this time with us. The Age of the Strongman, how... The Cult of the Leader Threatens Democracy Around the World is a incredibly a readable book, even if a lot of what's in it is alarming and depressing. But it absolutely is your conversation with me, Gideon, this morning has underlined, takes us to the critical issues for, well, for humanity in the years to come. Gideon, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me on. On a more personal note, an underlying message in Gideon's book is that we need to reconnect being in charge to principles of diligence, intelligence, humility, ethical commitment. As a boss myself and someone who works with others with power, this book is not just about things happening out there, but how we can all, as leaders and as followers, contribute to creating the leadership we need to save and renew our world. Goodbye. We are the RSA. 
We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.